Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Election Integrity Takes Center Stage. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Well, welcome everybody to the Heritage Foundation, those of you who are here in person and those of you who are joining us uh, virtually. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., where you need to show an identification and a vaccine card to enter a gym or a restaurant, but you do not need to show an ID to vote. Uh, it is the same in many states across the country. Last year, a 2020 election for a town council a seat in Eatonville, Florida, was overturned by a judge and a new winner was declared because of voter fraud. The same thing happened in Mississippi, where a judge overturned the results of a Democratic primary for a position as a ward alderman because of voter fraud and voter intimidation. While voter fraud may not make a difference in many elections, it certainly can in close ones, and we have lots of close elections in this country. Another problem is that nobody really knows the full extent of the voter fraud problem. Since there are many vulnerabilities in our election laws, making it easy to commit voter fraud and difficult to catch after the fact. That is, if you can find a prosecutor who is interested in pursuing voter fraud cases after an election has occurred. One absolute truth that I can tell you, it is highly unlikely to find voter fraud if you don't bother to look for it. Members of the mainstream media and many politicians choose to ignore or belittle any discussion about voter fraud and are quick to label any attempt to address it as voter suppression or a threat to our democracy. We are fortunate to have with us a very distinguished panel to discuss various facets of this problem. I will introduce them in the order in which they will speak, and we should have time for some questions at the end from our in-person and virtual attendees. So I would encourage you to be thinking about those questions and to submit them. We will first hear from John Fund. John is a national affairs columnist for National Review. Uh, magazine, and he is also an analyst for Fox News. He has previously served as a columnist and a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. He's written articles that have appeared in dozens of publications. He's also written several books, including three books on voter fraud, two of which were co-authored with his fellow panelist, Hans von Spakovsky. The first was Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, and the most recent is here. Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. We will then hear from Hans von Spakovsky, my colleague. Hans is a senior legal fellow and the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative at the Heritage Foundation in the Mies Center. Like John uh, Fund, Hans has written articles that have appeared in dozens of journals and periodicals, and he is a frequent legal and political commentator uh, on various media outlets. Before joining Heritage, 
Hans served as a, a federal election commissioner, which is the agency that enforces campaign finance laws for congressional and presidential elections. He also spent several years working in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice, providing expertise in enforcing the Voting Rights Act and the Help America Vote Act. And he also served as a former vice chairman of the electoral board in Fairfax County, Virginia, and as a member of the Fulton County, Georgia Board of Registration and Elections, and as an advisor to the US Election Commission. We will then hear from the Honorable Brian Hughes. Brian is in his second term in the Texas Senate, where he represents 16 counties in East Texas. He obtained his undergraduate degree from the University of Texas, where he's been honored as the outstanding alumnus, and his law degree from Baylor University, where he was honored as the Baylor Young Lawyer of the Year. While in the State Senate, Brian has received numerous accolades, including the Taxpayer Champion Award, the Defender of the American Dream Award, and the Horizon Award from the Texas Right to Life. We will then uh, be joined virtually by the Honorable Kyle Ardwin. Kyle is Louisiana's 44th Secretary of State and is the President-elect of the National Association of the Secretaries of State. He served in that role since 2018 after serving for nearly a decade as the first Assistant Secretary of State. Since his election, Kyle has championed legislation to strengthen Louisiana's election laws and its cybersecurity, including laws that ban har ballot harvesting, uh, ballot trafficking, and require managerial or managed service providers to register uh, and report to the Secretary of State. Because of these efforts, the agency that he oversees has received national recognition by the Election Assistance Commission and various other organizations. Last, but certainly not least, we will hear from Jessica Anderson. Jessica is currently the Executive Director at Heritage Action for America, where she is responsible for the strategic vision and operations of that organization while working alongside the leadership of the Heritage Foundation to ensure that both uh, organizations are aligned and working towards common goals. Jessica previously worked at Heritage Action as a vice president before taking leave to join the Trump administration as an associate director of intergovernmental affairs and strategic initiatives at the Office of Management and Budget. We are certainly glad to have her back. Uh, Jessica has received numerous awards, including most recently the Buckley Award for Conservative Leadership. And with that, John, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, in 2000, the issue of election integrity and the administration of our elections stopped being so much a local and state issue and becoming, became a national issue with the Bush v. Gore race. And Americans realized that our sloppy, backward, antiquated election systems in many states could really impact national policy because the presidential race was decided in one state, Florida, by just 537 votes. There was a coming together by both parties that we had to improve our election systems. And that resulted in the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which was completely bipartisan passed by a Democratic Senate, signed into law by a Republican president. Uh, its lead co-sponsor, Senator Chris Dodd, a Democrat from Connecticut, said the purpose of this bill is to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. We're Americans. We can do both at the same time. The first few years after that, uh, election integrity was still, to a large extent, a bipartisan issue. Uh, in 2008, the Supreme Court, by a vote of six to three, 
upheld the constitutionality of Indiana's voter ID law. And the opinion was written by the, who, the court's most liberal member at the time, John Paul Stevens, who recounted uh, a long history of voter fraud and voter irregularities and voter sloppiness in America and said the very integrity of our elections was at stake. If people, and he cited several polls which showed rising cynicism about the accuracy and completeness of our vote counts, he said to the extent that public cynicism grows about the reliability of our elections, you're going to see voter turnout go down, you're going to see less public confidence in our elections, and ultimately less legitimacy in our government and the government officials who serve us. Unfortunately, starting about 10 or 12 years ago, that bipartisan makeup of the v debate over elections started to break down dramatically. Uh, under Barack Obama's Justice Department, and Hans and I have written a book about this, uh, the issue became thoroughly politicized. Uh, as soon as Barack Obama took office, uh, one of his top justice officials held a meeting and uh, announced that a provision of the Help America Vote Act, which specified that in exchange for the federal government upgrading uh, election systems for states, sending them money, uh, they would have to submit to um, a culling of the rolls, a cleanup of the voter registration rolls, which in most states are notoriously inaccurate. The Pew Research Center in 2012 estimated that one out of six voter registrations was inaccurate, um, unreliable, or outdated. And I think that starting with the Obama administration, when they decided openly to say, we are not going to file any cases against states that don't maintain their voter rolls, we're going to ignore that because that could decrease voter turnout rather than increase voter turnout. That's not what we're interested in. Well, if you have voter registration rolls that are as inaccurate as the ones many states have, the people who are going to be sometimes voting are people who shouldn't be voting. And one of the things that our book emphasizes is that there are two civil rights that everyone in this audience has. Uh, you have the right to vote freely uh, without any undue influence, any barriers, no poll taxes, no Jim Crow laws that we had up until the 1960s. Uh, no one should stand in a polling place location and in any way, shape, or form block you from voting. That's a civil rights battle that we fought in the 60s. We need to preserve and extend those gains. But everyone in this country also has a second civil right, which is not to have their vote canceled out, nullified by someone who shouldn't be voting, someone who's dead. Uh, look, I believe in you know honoring uh, our elders and honoring our ancestors, but I don't believe in representation without respiration. <laughs> and uh, someone who's dead, someone who's moved out of state, uh, someone who doesn't exist, uh, someone who's registered from a post office box or a vacant lot, uh, or who's a felon who hasn't yet had their civil rights restored. When that happens, election results are tainted, illegitimate, and people lose confidence in the election process. Um, I'll just conclude by saying that it's unfortunate that the media in the last year or so has decided to completely ignore one side of the story. Uh, the headlines are full of articles about voter suppression, alleged racism, um, the big lie. Uh, we're not here to discuss that so much. In fact, I'll quote Phil Klein, the former Kansas Attorney General. Many on the left decried the lack of transparency prior to the 2020 election, but now that they've won, uh, they are silent. 
Many on the right have improperly claimed definitive proof of fraud in 2020 instead of recognizing that all investigations and reviews of government performance begin with questions, not conclusions. The result is a form of nuclear warfare where both sides engage in the mutual assured destruction by dropping accusatory soundbite bombs hoping to cancel each other. Meanwhile, responsive government dies, unquote. Look. There are two sides of the story. We just went through a long debate in the United States Senate over the um, Let the People Vote Act. And the other side on this spent probably $100 million. They had 99% of the mainstream media on their side yelling racism in a crowded political theater, uh, which led to incendiary charges and the President of the United States accusing opponents of this act of being uh, modern-day supporters of Jim Crow and adherence to the philosophy of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. It's time to turn down the temperature, and it's time now that the bill has been defeated for us to actually step back and take a calmer look. And I think that that has to begin with recognizing that there is a real debate. Our systems are antiquated and outdated, and sometimes you can't tell where the incompetence ends and the fraud begins. And I'll give you just three examples from yesterday's newspapers and internet. In Compton, California, three people who had been accused of stealing votes in a city council election that ultimately ended up being decided by one vote pled guilty. The city council member who was the instigator, apparently, for that fraud has not pled guilty, but all of his associates apparently have. Um, Compton, by the way, is 99% minority. Uh, that's 100,000 people live in Compton. In next door, Hawthorne, California, uh, two people have been charged with uh, submitting 8,000 fake voter registrations. This is in a city that's 64% minority. One of the things that has been completely ignored in the mainstream media is sometimes the biggest victims of voter fraud are minorities mm -hmm. in areas where government is corrupt, government is unresponsive, government provides poor services. Sometimes reformers try to change that, and local political machines will take any action necessary, including and up to uh, voter fraud, in order to squelch reform. I've seen that happen and reported on it in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in St. Louis, in Hawthorne and Compton, and many other places. That's why minorities, surprisingly, support voter integrity measures like voter ID by percentages as high or higher than the white population. In fact, the Washington Post survey of a few years ago found that minority populations, Asians, blacks, Hispanics, support election integrity measures and believe that voter fraud is a serious problem in a greater percentage than Caucasians do. Why is that? Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, we have seen over and over again that voter fraud does affect elections. We saw a congressional race in North Carolina overturned by a federal court, had to be rerun. And we've seen examples at the Heritage Foundation's website, which has over 1,500 documented cases of voter fraud. Um, lastly, uh, there are some signs that in the wake of the uh, For the People Act being defeated in the Senate, there are some signs that there's perhaps going to be reevaluation. In Sunday's New York Times, Chris Caldwell, who's a contributing uh, writer for the New York Times editorial page, had a very interesting piece in which he said, uh, the various iterations of the For the People Act uh, were case in point in how the media has distorted this issue. 
Um, Democrats monopolized the political argument for a year. If there were a solid case, their bill really was an emergency project to protect democracy. It would have triumphed by now. And he concludes by saying, voters of any background might, for example, be appalled by what happened on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol. But they also might consider the intervention of Infotech billionaires in the 2020 election to be a larger potential threat to our democracy. Mark Zuckerberg's foundation gave upward of $400 million to the nonprofit Center for Tech and Civic Life to help local governments organize elections under COVID-19 conditions. It is hard to imagine that anyone worried about the role of private wealth in prison construction or military contracting or public schools would welcome such a role in elections. Whether this says anything about the presidential election of 2024 is unclear, but for the time being, writes Caldwell in the New York Times, the Republican argument against which the Democratic argument is being measured does not include these factors. And I believe that if we are going to discuss this in the wake of the failure of the For the People Act, we have to have an honest discussion that there are two sides to the story and that the American people rejected the argument that this was only about voter suppression and only about preserving democracy. After $100 million was spent on this, polls by various organizations, including the Honest Election Project, which is in this room, proved conclusively the needle did not move at all on these issues. The American people do believe our elections are imperiled, but they don't believe it's a simplistic one-size-fits-all explanation. They do believe that we have to pay attention not just to the civil right of making sure everyone is able to vote, but also that every vote is counted accurately and that people's rights are protected from fraudsters and from incompetent bureaucrats. Thank you. Hans? Well, it's hard to follow up with John, but uh, since we often write together, I guess I'm going to have to do that. Um, <laughs> Look, some years ago, uh, the Heritage Foundation, John Malcolm uh, and myself, we got the idea that you know, we got tired of reading stories in the Washington Post and elsewhere saying there's no election fraud, we don't need to worry about it. So we started a election fraud database. It's unique, it's the only one in the, in the country that we know of. Um, it only has proven cases of fraud in it. Someone's been convicted in a court of law or a judge has ordered a new election like the uh, elections that John was talking about. Um, we're up to 1,340 cases. Uh, we now have three more cases to add, the Compton, California cases. Uh, and you know what's happened is um, <laughs> now, now what the newspapers and others say is, well, there's no widespread election fraud across the country, and I'm going, well, how widespread does it need to be before you want to do something about it? Particularly when you have elections, close elections, that get overturned. And there's example after example of that. Uh, the other problem, of course, with this is, uh, and John mentioned this, is look, prosecutors, unfortunately, aren't interested in prosecuting and taking a lot of these cases. I know of many, many other cases of potential fraud that prosecutors have ignored. Um, and a quick example, if I may give it, uh, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, I'm on the board uh, of that, besides my work at Heritage, uh, they recently used the Sunshine Laws in Florida to ask for um, all criminal referrals from just 10 counties in Florida, 
criminal referrals where election officials uh, found evidence that uh, criminal violations of election laws had occurred um, uh, from uh, related to the 2020 election. Uh, they issued a report, it's available on their website, 156 criminal referrals from those counties, nine of them, nine out of the 10, and then they followed up, uh, checked court records and everything, and do you know that the prosecutors, local prosecutors in those nine counties did absolutely nothing about any of those criminal referrals. Now, if they had done something about that and those cases been proven, our database would jump up quite a bit. But there are many, many instances of that, unfortunately. Um, so this, this website shows, again, it's a sampling of cases only. It is not a comprehensive list, and it does not include all the potential cases out there that aren't investigated by election officials and aren't prosecuted. By the way, remember I said they tried 10 counties? They got information back from nine counties. The 10th county, Hillsborough County, said, oh, the election officials said, we, we don't refer any any of the cases we find a local prosecutor. So they're not even interested in investigating potential election crimes and going after that. So that's a real problem in this area. Now the other, uh, and this is a map, it's up on our website, you can click on any state, it'll pull up the fraud case, give you the details, and most importantly, give you uh, citations to the source documents, everything from newspaper articles to um, actual court cases. Uh, as John can tell you, uh, before the last election, um, several media outlets got together and assigned 14 reporters to not investigate possible problems in the election sphere, but to investigate our database, to go through every single case we had, trying to find problems and mistakes, and they couldn't find a single one because we're very careful. Um, the latest thing that we've done, uh, this was a huge project, took a lot of work. We started this uh, a year ago, was we now have on our website our election integrity scorecard. Because as you know, the Heritage Foundation, we don't just identify problems, we want to recommend solutions. And so what we did is we analyzed the election laws that we believe are important to election integrity and security, which are intended to protect voters our goal is both access and security. Um, and we compared it to a list of best practices that we have recommended to the states on how they should do everything from handling the cleanup and maintaining the accuracy of the voter registration rolls to how they should handle the absentee balloting process to maintain the security of that process. Uh, and then we compared each state's laws to our best practices. Now, folks need to understand, this is not an analysis of the 2020 election. This is the status of the laws and regulations in each state as of a month ago. And remember what happened in 2021. A number of states acted like Texas, and Senator Hughes is going to tell you about that, to try to fix the vulnerabilities in their system, which unfortunately exist. And a number of states passed very good election reform bills, uh, Florida, Georgia, Texas, uh, even Arizona, and a number of other states did that. And so we rated each state, a uh, perfect score was 100. Uh, no, no state in the country got 100. I think the highest score was 83. 
Uh, Texas was pretty high. I think you guys were sixth. Um, but what that shows you is that while a lot of states have, have done everything they can to improve the process, uh, to protect their voters, there's still room for improvement. And the other big advantage of this is that we've also put up model laws on issues like voter ID, for example. Um, and this is going to be continually updated. So we're going to be doing a lot of work from now on. Uh, every time states have their legislative sessions, uh, we will update it. Now, one final warning about this scorecard. Uh, you can have the best laws and regulations in the country, but if local officials and state officials don't comply with those laws and don't enforce them, they're, they're not going to do you much good. And we're hoping that uh, folks at the grassroots, public, you know, citizens, state legislators and others will use this to, to not only put in good laws, but make sure that election officials are complying with the laws that have been constitutionally put in place by their state legislatures. Um, each state, you can click on it, you can uh, get complete details. We explain our methodology, what the best practices are that we think should be there. 12 broad categories, 47 different criteria, and this is a work in progress. If folks think we have missed something, if they think something needs to be corrected, if they think there's another standard or criteria, criteria they think we ought to consider, uh, we want to hear about it. So we encourage folks to take a look at this, analyze it, look at our standards, look at our methodology, and let us know if there's uh, anything you, you, you think we should fix. I, I hate to say it, but there are a number of states that are at the bottom of the list because their standards are so bad and their election laws are, are in terrible shape. Uh, and what does that mean? It means there's a lot of room, unfortunately, for fraud. If someone wants to commit it and there are no security measures in place to really stop it or detect it, you can do it and you can get away with it. And as the cases in our database show, there are folks who are willing to do that, to get into positions of power. Why is that? Well, because as a now retired Long-time career lawyer at the Justice Department told me years ago uh, he had been responsible for prosecuting these kind of election crimes for many years. He said, look, uh, in many places, whether it's big cities or rural counties, um, elected positions are positions of power because jobs, contracts, money are dealt out by local governments. And people in some places, unfortunately, are willing to misbehave to get into those uh, positions. So uh, I want to thank everybody for coming today, but there's a lot more to be said about this. And I think I'll end there, John. Brian? Thanks very much. Uh, my name is Brian Hughes. It's great to be here, uh, connecting with those who are here virtually and also, also present. Uh, important stuff and we're thankful for the work of heritage and each one here i've gotten to work with each one on this panel and so many in the room and and learning a lot that's how uh, federalism is supposed to work right we learn from each other's mistakes and copy the the good stuff and uh so with that texas did go through this in the last year uh election integrity is something we've worked on for a while uh, in 2017 we had a, a mail ballot a reform bill it was passed on a bipartisan basis in 2019 uh, we came back for more reforms uh, based on what we hear from folks back home. It's not, a, again, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, as John said. Sadly, it has become that. 
And then in 2021, we came back with more reforms. Again, in Texas, since we have a part-time citizen legislature, we are in session for normally 140 days is every two years. I know, Mr. Chairman, better if it were two days every 140 years, but we're we're there for about five months every other year. And, and during that interim, we're back home, back in our old jobs, and we see people at church and at football games and at the grocery store, and we have to give account for what happened, what didn't happen. And we, get, we hear testimony from folks that way and also formally at hearings. And when we hear these problems, whether it's about election integrity or education or transportation, we try to address those problems. So uh, that's what this was about. And it was an especially ugly debate this year because of all that was going on nationally. But the good news is common sense reforms got put in place. Many of these, of course, are not partisan. None of them should be, but many of them, uh, for example, a paper backup, right, uh, an auditable paper trail. One of the part of the fallout from the Help America Vote Act was lurching everyone toward electronic voting and those direct recording uh, electronic electric voting systems, pardon me, uh, where there's no, they're somewhat unfulfilling, right? When you vote on that electronic system and just poof, you voted and some, not just rednecks like me, a lot of folks would have more confidence if there were a paper record. So if we have to do a recount, we can do a recount. That was a long fight that finally got done in Texas. And how about a way to track your own mail ballot application? I know we've heard from folks who say, I sent my application for ballot by mail. I don't know if it's going to get here in time. Or I returned my my application, my ballot by mail. Is it going to make it? Now in Texas, we have a portal, a unique number that you can go into and track your mail ballot application, your mail ballot, make sure it's going to get there in time, know whether you should come and vote in person, so many things like that. Chain of custody uh, for those ballots, 24-hour uh, live stream video, where those ballots are being kept when they're brought to central counting, things like that, which should not have been a fight. Some of those things were a real fight. We have those in Texas. Now, we did learn, uh, we did learn in this process uh, that uh, much, so much of what we, was doing, we were doing was being scrutinized, and there was such a presumption against uh, everything we were doing, such a presumption that we were just trying to do something nefarious, when in fact, these reforms on their face, and, and as we followed through, were just common sense uh, reforms. Expanding access was an important thing because uh, Senator Dodd's words about easy to vote, hard to cheat, I think some of us thought we thought of that ourselves. We've all been using that for a long time, and we mean that. Easy to vote, hard to cheat. It just makes sense until we expanded access. Texas already had more early voting days uh, than Jersey, more than New York, uh, more than President Biden's home state of Delaware, which had zero early voting days until recently. They still have fewer than Texas, but we expanded those more. We expanded access to make sure folks could get access to the ballot. And while we did that, we wanted to work on access as well as security, because both are so important, and we, we understand that. It's interesting. Uh, if you look at the criminal penalties in Senate Bill 1, our reform bill, and you look at the other other uh, measures with teeth, they are aimed not so much at individual voters who are trying to cheat. That happens. But the real problem is those is in some places those election officials who are cheating or misleading people or those ballot harvesters, those paid political operatives who are trying to get between the voter and her ballot. We crack down hard so that folks have access and they're allowed to vote in a vote in a way that's going to be counted. And so uh, a couple of things along those lines. Uh, in Texas, if you look at our prosecutions, the, the greatest problem that we see is, of course, mail ballot fraud. Uh, in Texas, we do not have uh, mail ballots for everyone. In Texas, you need to be 65 or over out of the county or disabled to vote by mail. We do offer robust in-person early voting options. 
but as far as ballots by mail, that's who it's for in Texas. What we find is ballot harvesters go in the neighborhoods and they mislead people. They get people to sign blank forms and then they go back and change the information or they'll check disability when the person didn't even claim to be disabled. And you know what happens. They know when the ballots come, they pull them out of mailboxes, they forge signatures. So this bill cracks down on that and makes it a crime. And in fact, the language in this bill is so strong that political parties will be careful now. Paid political operatives really cannot, in Texas, will not be able to have anything to do with an application for ballot by mail or a mail ballot. If you're a volunteer, you can help some with that, but if you are working for a campaign on a campaign's payroll in Texas, it is illegal for you to have any interaction with the voter in person with that application or that ballot by mail. That was a hard, bright line to draw, but we thought it was important to protect those vulnerable voters. And also illegal assistance. That sounds awkward, but the, most of us here know the lingo. Uh, that's when people claim to be assisting a voter, but in fact, they, the one claiming to offer assistance is voting the way they want to, not the way the voter wants to. Our Attorney General's office and our DAs prosecute these cases, and there's tangible evidence I'm going to show you uh, in a moment. So those things we crack down on. We also uh, put things in place to make sure the system is working right, to make sure poll watchers have access to do their jobs, but not to intimidate, not to, again, not to interfere with the voting process. Uh, also making sure the machines are working right so we can have confidence in that system. Those are some of the, some of the high point things we did. Voter ID. We've had voter ID in Texas in person since 2011. We now have voter ID for ballots by mail, and we're implementing that for this for this, for this election cycle. Our Secretary of State's working with our counties to make sure everybody knows. And for the first time ever, and this never gets talked about in, the, in many of the stories, but for the first time ever in Texas, there is a standardized cure process for those applications for ballot by mail. In the past, if you have a problem on your ballot by mail, it's rejected. You don't know about it unless you chase it down. You don't know what needs to be fixed. Now in Texas, in every county, a standardized system where the voters informed and given an opportunity to cure defects in their application for ballot by mail. Again, we want every eligible voter to vote, be encouraged to vote, make it easy. We do not want people to cheat. And as far as enforcement goes, John made a great point. Now, we can pass strong laws, uh, but if our district attorneys are not willing to enforce the laws or if we don't have other state authority to do that, it's a real problem. And as conservatives, we understand the challenge, right? We, we, are, we are reticent to expand a statewide executive office like Attorney General. We have a great Attorney General in Texas, and I hope we always will. But we recognize if we if we concentrate too much power in one place, that can be abused. We may not always have a great Attorney General in Texas or other states. And we know why our founders were, our founders loathed concentration of power for a reason. So we lack local control, but what happens when the local district attorney, for whatever reason, doesn't prosecute these cases, whether they don't have the resources, whether they're afraid of the ballot harvesters, whether they're in bed with them, or, or a plethora of other possibilities. I'm not suggesting any of those are more likely than others, but for whatever reason, they're not getting prosecuted. So what do we do about that? And so in Texas, uh, as, as one tool, we added private causes of action, private causes of action. So let's say an election is stolen from you and the district attorney won't prosecute. Well, in Texas now, you can file a civil lawsuit against that ballot harvester, against that one who stole the election, and you can, you can make them disgorge the 
monies that were paid for doing that also get your attorney's fees back. Of course, there's always the normal process for challenging elections, and, and those are pretty tight frames for that. That's always an option. But even if it's too late to overturn the election, if you can prove you were cheated, you can hold the wrongdoer accountable. And we, as conservatives, we shouldn't fear this. You know, number seven of the first ten is uh, the right to trial by jury in a civil case. Has it been abused? Of course. Do we have to guard it jealously? Yes. But private citizens, a jury of your peers holding you accountable, that just makes sense. That's a uniquely American idea. And so we are using that in Texas. You may know we're also using it in the heartbeat bill, separate issue from today. But we're using that in Texas, and we believe that will have an effect. Now, as far as illegal assistance, uh, what does that look like? I do want, I do want to share one example with you uh, before I give you a, a little bit of time back. And so we talked about, you talked about how many times the fraud takes place in, in minority communities. We found that as well. Uh, elderly voters, folks who maybe don't speak the English language so well, uh, first-time voters, they're the ones most often preyed upon by illegal by ballot harvesters, uh, by these paid operatives who just want to cheat. And yes, with, with financial motives. And so I'm going to read you sworn testimony from a trial in Hidalgo County, Texas. Uh, this is a sworn testimony given under trial. The case is on appeal now. And this the, the lady I'm going to quote is named Angie Cavazos. Ms. Cavazos was a first-time voter, but she wanted to vote. She was encouraged to vote until she came. And then when she got to the polling place, someone showed up to help her. And I'm just going to read you her words. And she says, uh, and then I go to the polling place, and Marcella goes up. Now, I should have mentioned Marcella later testified. She was being paid $500 to be at the polling place to help candidates, Now she to help voters. Now, she was being paid by one of the candidates, did that color the way she was giving assistance? Well, well, who knows? But she was being paid by a candidate at the polling place to help voters. So Marcella. So back to Ms. Cavazza. She says, I go to the polling place, and Marcella goes up. I go to the polls, and Marcella comes up behind me. I had the intention of, well, she was going to assist me how to do those things because I didn't understand that machine. Uh, so she started punching in the machine. I don't even remember the, remember the language in the poll. So she was telling me, you're going to press here, and you're going to press over there. So I saw that she put it in favor of the team that she was on. So I had the idea that she was giving me, uh, like, a tour of how to do those things, and that she was going to leave. I didn't touch the pole at any time. So by the time I told her, okay, let me, let me, let me vote on my own, she said, no, you already voted. Now, that's what we're cracking down on in Texas. Uh, voters like that have a right to vote however they want to vote. And people who are doing what was alleged to be done here are going to be held accountable in Texas. Uh, again, this is happening. Uh, as you said, the charge from the other side used to be there's no evidence of voter fraud. And now it's there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. And of course, we always ask the question in response, how much fraud is OK? How much fraud is acceptable? Of course, we know the answer to that. How much fraud is acceptable? None. How much suppression is acceptable? None. None. And that's why we have to get this right, and we really do have to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. I'm glad to be here today. I'm learning from everyone on the panel and those here, and thank you for having me. At the left, you say voter fraud is a myth. They now say it's rare. I'll take progress where it comes, <laughs> although they really have no idea uh, how rare or, or often it happens. Uh, Kyle, are you with us? Uh, in the more than 10 years I've worked in this office, beginning as first assistant and now as secretary of state, I've never seen the public uh, 
more focused on election integrity as it is now. Personally, I've relished the opportunity to educate the public on Louisiana's top-notch election processes and procedures. And I'm proud that Heritage has ranked Louisiana as one of the best states in election integrity in the nation. In the time since I've become Secretary of State, I've worked with the legislature to implement sensible election integrity measures that have garnered bipartisan support while pushing back against attempts to implement liberal policies lacking in accountability. In 2020, when the entire nation was first gripped with COVID, I faced enormous pressure to implement universal vote by mail in Louisiana. I stood up to that pressure and worked with my legislative colleagues and our attorney general to craft a plan that worked for Louisiana. One that was limited in scope and upheld by a liberal judge, not once, but twice. In that same year, we passed a bill to ban ballot harvesting in Louisiana, one that passed with overwhelming support in both parties and signed into law by a Democrat governor. During last year's session, we also passed legislation that ensured the most accurate information available was supplied by my department to ensure that deceased voters were being removed from our voter registration list. As an aside, this bill passed with unanimous support. Every Republican and every Democrat voted for it, and our Democratic governor signed it into law. And yet the Brennan Center called this a, quote, voter purge, end quote, and accused us of, quote, making voting harder, end quote. Even after we confronted them and gave them the facts, they maintained their lie about what is what this law actually does. Yes, we faced some defeats, a champion legislation with my Republican friends to ban Zuckerbucks and any attempt to privately fund elections and to institute a second annual voter canvas to ensure that our voter registration list is staying accurate as possible. Both bills were vetoed by the governor, but we're not giving up in Louisiana. And this year, I'm excited about two pieces of legislation that I've already secured sponsors for. One is a bill that will strengthen our voter ID laws that have been on the books since 1997. And I would uh, ironically let you know that that was the Clinton administration's Department of Justice that approved our uh, voter ID law in, uh, when we had um, to be had to have legislation approved by the, the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, I believe that was called preclearance. For those that are registering to vote in online, we're going to require them to utilize additional efforts um, to prove citizenship. I'm proud that we were among first states to adopt online voter registration, but equally as proud that we are always looking for ways to make sure that nobody can take advantage of that system. Secondly, I'll be pursuing an amendment to our state constitution that will ban any municipality or local governing authority in Louisiana from allowing non-citizens to vote in any election. What happened in New York just a few weeks ago is an affront to election integrity, and we can't let that happen. And the best part of this proposed amendment is that it doesn't need the governor's signature. Once it passes the legislature, it will be going straight to the voters of Louisiana for their approval. I'm proud of our record in Louisiana as we continue to strengthen our election integrity laws, processes, and procedures. I'm proud that we've done so by working with Republicans and Democrats. I'm proud that we've stood our ground against outside liberal groups like the Brennan Center who want to tell Louisiana how to run our elections. Again, thank you for this opportunity to brag about Louisiana and the strides we've made and how we can be an example to the rest of the nation in successfully strengthening our elections. And as, as others have said, it's not wrong 
to strengthen our laws and election integrity efforts. We need to make it harder to cheat and easier to vote. And in Louisiana, it's never been easier to either register and vote or vote. It's, it's very simple. When you have over 90% of your eligible registrants, uh, eligible citizens registered, that's an important part. But the other part is making it easy to access the ballot box. We've had early voting in Louisiana. We have seven days. We expanded it during COVID to offer more opportunities. And we will continue to look for ways to expand it. But we will also make sure that on balance, integrity efforts are a priority in our great state. Thank you for this opportunity. And I look forward to questions. Thank you, Kyle. Jessica? Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be with everybody this morning and, and to back clean up uh, after this uh, very diverse uh, discussion about the different aspects that go into securing the vote and safeguarding our elections. Um, I run Heritage Action. This is a grassroots organization. It's two million activists across the country. And one of the things that we've realized uh, in the last 12 to 18 months is that the fight to secure our elections uh, is the is the base of any form of grassroots activism on any issue going forward. We don't have a shot at advocating for life issues, to cut spending, to engage in a strong foreign national defense, to work on energy and environmental issues here in the United States. We don't have a shot at doing any of that with our elected officials if we don't have faith in our vote. And so that's really been the anthem of the grassroots the last year. I think a lot of it was spurred uh, from some of the confusion coming out of the November election. It took a, a while for people to understand exactly what was at, uh, at, at stake and what was at play on the ground, but then to focus on moving forward. And so the, the goal for the grassroots the last uh, year and a half has been twofold. It's been to block the federal overreach of our election systems, and it's been to tackle state-based reforms. And so I'm really proud of the work that grassroots activists have been able to do to, to not only support great state legislators like Senator Hughes in Texas, come alongside them as they pass these really incredibly important bills that, frankly, are nonpartisan. There's nothing crazy. There's nothing nefarious. There's nothing racist about any of these bills that move through the states. And they were there. They, they did hallway activism. They engaged uh, with the lawmakers. They showed up, uh, some actually in Texas, until 4 a.m. one night giving testimony in these committee hearings. I mean, this is the power of citizen activists coming out of the woodwork and engaging in such an important and, and frankly, comprehensive issue to our republic. That work at the state level, it was going on um, just very intentionally, not only in Texas, but in Florida, in Georgia, in Arizona, and other places across the country. Always on top of our mind, though, was what was going on here in Washington with the various bills that both uh, Leader Schumer as well as Nancy Pelosi were putting forward uh, on Capitol Hill. That started with S1 or HR1. Uh, it, at different parts of the year, it turned into HR4, which got into the preclearance things my colleagues were talking about. Whatever the bill and the package was, though, the end goal was the same, which was a federal takeover of our elections. Someone asked me the other day if I thought we needed that. Do we need a federal election system? My answer was no. States are doing a fine, good job, and they should continue to do a fine, good job. And so there's really not a need for those sorts of legislative packages. Now, the left would try to 
um, has tried, I think arguably unsuccessful this last year, in re trying to reframe this debate about voting rights, about disenfranchisement, about um, racial inequalities or inequities at the state level. They had a vested interest, interest, the left that is, had a vested interest in seeing states like Georgia, like Texas, like Arizona, like Florida. They had a vested interest in reframing what these states did and calling it out as racist or vote suppressionist because they needed to show their fellow lawmakers here in Washington that there, in fact, was a need for this federal takeover. The states are crazy. They can't do it on our own. We, therefore, the mighty Washington bureaucrats, must do it for them. The American people saw through that, right? This is, this is, this is a year and a half into this where so many tr uh, got up to the bat to pass these bills. They failed. They lost the public argument. And we're seeing now, I think, just a complete wave of just not, not just conservative grassroots activists, but everyday average American citizens like my parents actually seeing through so much of this narrative and recognizing that the left is manipulating the success of the states for their goal here in Washington. They can't actually win with a compelling legislative agenda, so they resort to rigging the rules, breaking the filibuster, as we all know, and then advancing this HR1 or potentially S1 forward. And so that sort of state of play has been, has been frankly, top of mind. Uh, there's a very broad coalition that has uh, worked from coast to coast to have with having these two goals in mind, blocking the federal overreach, tackling these state bills. We call ourselves the Save Our Elections Coalition, and the goal is to do just that, save our elections. And so going forward, I think this is going to be um, a fight that we are, are glad to take on this year. We're armed with new information. The Heritage Scorecard uh, is very much the roadmap for what states need to continue to tackle reforms, uh, where those gaps on voter integrity lie. I love the scorecard because it's so easy to use. It lets me click my state, see where my gaps are, what can I do to increase my score. There's draft model legislation I can download. And so as a grassroots activist, as a citizen activist, I can then go to my state lawmaker and I can encourage them to tackle this and to take it on uh, this year in their state legislative chambers. So I expect we're going to see a lot of activity from states this year in 2022. Uh, we're already seeing about a half a dozen states introduce bills um, around these election integrity provisions, in particular on strengthening voter ID and making sure that this very common sense provision of voter ID, as, as John's comments at the beginning, you have to have an ID to get your vaccine. You have to have your vaccine card then to get into restaurants, but you don't have to vote in D.C. That that sort of comparison uh, exists in a lot of states around the country, and, 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 and people are eager uh, to have a voter ID in a lot of places like Georgia, like South Carolina. If you don't have them, they're available for free. And so there's, I think, going to be... Um, much more excitement around bills like that. And so we're watching what states are doing. I think you're going to continue to see grassroots enthusiasm. You're going to see people show up. Uh, and you're going to see people actually engage in a substantive way on the merits and principles of this bill. I think if we learned anything from this last year, it's that it's not enough to just read the sound bites of what these bills did at the state level. You actually have to go in and look. Are, are we actually limiting people from having water in line like they accused us of in Georgia? No, that's not what this bill is doing. So I think a lot of activists, uh, frankly, just learned that we have to read the bills for ourselves. We can't rely on what the mainstream media is saying or, or characterizing. Um, and that's going to bring, I think, a flood of, of 
renewed enthusiasm around uh, these state bills as they move through state legislative chambers. Second thing would be here in Washington, uh, the, the fight to block this federal overreach is not yet over. Uh, there is a lot of um, interest from Schumer, from Pelosi, uh, to be able to nuke the filibuster in the Senate, to advance these bills to Biden's desk. I think Biden's comments, President Biden's comments, uh, I guess two weeks ago now in Atlanta, uh, really articulated where his heart is on this issue. He wants to see uh, a version of these bills on his desk, uh, certainly before the 2022 midterm elections. And so conservatives will need to stay vigilant, not only to preserve the filibuster for the many reasons we all would agree that we need it, but then to recognize this two-step power grab that could come shortly after with these HR1, S1 package of bills. The third point I would I would just make is, is one that um, conservatives are, I think, getting really comfortable and more used to talking about. And Senator Hughes, I think, illustrated this point so beautifully. The role of poll of a poll worker and a poll watcher and volunteering as part of election day operations, I mean, this is no easy task. What we're asking people to do is to give up you know, three, four, five weeks, depending on how long early voting is in their state give up their time, take some time off of work from their family, and to show up and to do a constitutional duty and a constitutional privilege to sit in there and to be the eyes and ears for freedom and for our constitution within the election system and the polling location place. That's a role that um, traditionally, there's been a, a lot of interest from the left in placing activists to do those things. Um, I would argue that that's a role that we all should and can be doing. We all love the Constitution. We want to see our vote protected. We can volunteer as poll workers and poll watchers uh, as well. And so Heritage Action has made a pretty significant push to encourage activists across the country to consider volunteering their time. Uh, you have to get trained by the state, and in a lot of times, that training with the state and that vetting process that the secretaries of states go through and the placement actually begins now. It begins this spring. So I think coming off of not only the Virginia governor's election, where you saw more poll workers uh, from the conservative right turn out, I think you're going to see that same sort of enthusiasm as boots on the ground to actually be faithful stewards of the Constitution within uh, our polling location. So I'm excited to see that. I think these are all good things for our republic. These are all good things when conservative activists show up, when they ask tough questions, when they defend the truth, uh, and, then, and frankly, when they support great lawmakers like Senator Hughes and support our great secretaries of state that work diligently to manage these election day operations without any interference from any partisan angle or perspective. So I'm, I'm really proud of that work. Um, I know it's a little different than some of the history uh, and legislative background, but I, I really wanted to leave you all with some of the grassroots color of what I've been hearing on the ground across the country and how real and personal this issue has become to so many of us. So thank you for the opportunity, John. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, I should have mentioned that we're, we're actually joined in the room by a number of, of friends and allies uh, in the election integrity fight, and I'm very, very grateful for all of those efforts. Um, in a moment, I'm going to be opening it up to questions from people here in the audience and, and people who want to uh, send them in. I, I, I want to make a couple of quick points myself, and maybe some of you will want to comment uh, on it. So Hans mentioned what we all know, which is, you know, elections have consequences. And if you elect the people on your side, you get policies that you like. It can lead to appointments, government contracts, power. Uh, I'm always 
head scratcher when I, I see media outlets on the left that are almost chortling when they point out that somebody who's accused of election fraud was a Republican voter, as if that somehow means that this isn't really a problem, as opposed to pointing out that, well, duh, this is a universal bipartisan right. <laughs> problem. You know, the incentives to cheat are just as great for Republicans as they are for Democrats. Once again, and then the other point I want to make, and you can comment on, on either or both of those, is that the left has been trying to make a number of election changes, many of which are in these federal bills, for years. And they, they failed uh, at the ballot box. They weren't able to get these changes through the legislature. Uh, but a number of executive branch officials and judges changed the rules uh, in 2020 without getting ratification from the state legislatures in most cases. Uh, on the rules that applied to that election. Uh, and the Department of Justice has already announced that if states, as the pandemic begins to wane, hopefully it will be over very soon, uh, that any state that attempts to revert back to the laws that are actually on the books in those states may be subject to suit by the Department of Justice. And I. I I think that's a real danger too. So, you know, any of you can, can comment I, on that, and and then let's uh, take some questions. I uh, just wanted to point out in the debate over the uh, For the People Act in the Senate, there was one point that Senator Schumer, the majority leader, declined to ever answer, which was this: uh, We know among many of the things that the bill would do to override state election laws, and for example, require same-day voter registration, which is an open invitation to ballot fraud, and also, of course, uh, eliminate any need for an excuse for absentee voting. He had no answer for those who brought up the fact that, of course, his own home state, New York, does not have same-day voter registration, does not uh, allow unlimited absentee voting. And in fact, just last November, two ballot measures were presented to New York voters to institute same-day voter registration and no excuse absentee voting, uh, two of the pillars of the For the People Act, and New York voters overwhelmingly defeated them. So Senator Schumer was pushing on all 50 states measures his own constituents had opposed. Now, Hans made a very important point about human nature being frail, and um, you know we're all flawed creatures. Uh, boy, it can get pretty ugly out there. Power is a very dangerous drug. Um, we've had two former members of Congress in Pennsylvania indicted in recent years, and what were they doing? These are former members of Congress. You'd think they'd have a reputation of some kind to protect. They would go into Alzheimer's homes where they were patients and assist them in filling out their ballots. They were both indicted. Um, in Texas, where Senator Hughes is from, a few years ago there was a group called Houston Votes that was registering people um, who didn't exist, who were illegal aliens, who were uh, ineligible to vote. Um, the county registrar, uh, Leo Vasquez, said this was outrageous. It was polluting garbage into our voter registration system. He found of the 25,000 applications the group Houston Votes filed, only 7,193 were actually for new voters fraud at an unprecedented scale. Now, I wrote about that story, and I interviewed the head of Houston Votes. His name was Sean Cadell. 
he struck me as a rather shifty and evasive fellow, but I had no idea because apparently he's been involved in voter fraud schemes all over the country from his home base in New Jersey, which of course is a fountain of voter fraud. Well, yesterday afternoon in New Jersey, um, Mr. Cadell finally um, paid a price for his activities over the years, uh, which extend back to Texas. He pled guilty to murder for hire. He had murdered a former a fellow political consultant. He paid two individuals to go to his apartment a few years ago, stab him to death, and then torch the place in order to hide the evidence. Um, he, he's uh, in home detention right now on $1 million bail. Um, this is serious stuff. There are people out there who will stop at nothing to subvert our elections. And for one side to deny that this is going on is frankly a dereliction of duty. Senator Schumer knows better. He knows better for the following reasons. A few years ago, the Democratic election commissioner for Manhattan, this is an official government position, was caught on tape by James O'Keefe of Project Veritas, admitting that voter fraud is rampant in New York, that buses go from neighborhood to neighborhood for repeat voting. And he admitted that, and he said, of course we need voter ID. What was the response from election officials in New York City? Mayor de Blasio had him fired within 48 hours because he was committing a political gaffe, which as you know in Washington and New York means you tell the truth inadvertently in <laughs> politics. Secondly, one of the last acts of Mayor Bloomberg before he turned over the mayor's office to Mayor de Blasio was to authorize a Department of Investigations probe into the New York Board of Elections, which is a notorious sinkhole of political patronage and corruption. And the Department of Investigations did something rather unusual. They actually looked to see whether the system had integrity. They took 63 investigators, had them pose as voters who had either moved out of state, were dead, or were serving time in Rikers Island. And they would go to polling places on the day that uh, Mayor de Blasio was elected, and they would try to vote. And they would mix and match. For example, a 25-year-old Puerto Rican investigator was trying to vote in the name of a 93-year-old Polish widow. Uh, completely disparate uh, descriptions in terms of age and everything else. 61 of the 63 times in Chuck Schumer's New York, those people were vowed to vote because there's no voter ID law in New York. There were only two occasions in which they were not, they were temporarily blocked from voting. One of them was the fellow had moved, or the alleged voter had moved from one neighborhood to another nearby. So the polling inspector said, oh, well, you can't vote here. So we walked him out to the street, pointed down the block, gave him directions so he could go to the place he had originally registered, and he voted there. That was one case. The second case was a fellow showed up and appeared before the polling inspector and said, I'd like to vote. And she looked up his name and looked up at him with a rather quizzical expression in her face and said, I'm sorry, I can't let you vote. And he said, well, why not? He said, well, you're trying to vote in the name of my son, and he's dead. <laughs> and you're not my son. So that was the only exception, the only time someone was prevented from voting. Chuck Schumer knows all of this. And yet he was trying to foist this bill in all 50 states, including Louisiana and Texas and other states that have worked so hard to improve the integrity of their election. This is a travesty. And thankfully, this $100 million campaign to nationalize our elections into one size fits all failed miserably. Now we have to go on offense 
and have a renewed effort to preserve and protect the integrity of our elections. Other comments? Brian? Well, on local officials, and you're right, we did have that happen in Texas. We had one county, uh, a large county in Texas, uh, that, uh, again, in response to COVID, uh, just made up some rules. So they invented drive-through voting. Now, we don't have drive-through voting in Texas. We do have uh, for folks with disabilities. Uh, of course, we will. there's curbside voting, so the, the election workers will bring the equipment out to the car for folks who are not able to go in and vote. But Harris County invented curb, invented drive-through voting. And of course, I think we all recognize the importance of the secret ballot and the private ballot. I don't know if you and your spouse uh, discuss how you vote or, or your boss or your coworker, uh, but that's obviously important that your vote be your vote. Imagine being in the car when they're passing the machine around, looking over your shoulder, that's a problem. Also in Harris County, they, they got to the end of early voting where they tried drive-through voting, the end of early voting, and they had, they looked at the number of votes and the number of voters, voters and there were 1,800 off. And so the election administrator in Harris County said, we better stop this before election day because uh, we're not sure these votes are going to count. And so uh, that was not in the election code, so we made it clear in Texas, no, we don't have drive-through voting. They also did 24-hour voting, and again, they had a hard time finding election workers, poll watchers, and uh, so when it's in a bill one, when we said no drive-through voting, no 24-hour voting, of course, we were accused of suppression. We scoured the country trying to find anyone else who had done 24-hour voting, and we almost gave up. But then we found Los Angeles, California. They implemented 24-hour voting in the primary election, but then they stopped it before the general because it didn't work. I haven't seen them accused of Jim Crow or anything else. But uh, the point is we did have a county using COVID as a reason to make up their own rules. And we did block that going forward. What do we do, though, instead to help folks who need access? Now in Texas, uh, when you uh, show up to vote, if you're in line when the polls close, you will be allowed to vote no matter how long it takes. We've had that law in place for in-person voting since the 1980s, but that was not the law for early voting. And most folks now vote early. And what about getting off work? A lot of our friends on the other side talk about working folks. We remind them that, hey, those are my people. Those folks who work for a living work by the hour, those are my voters. We care about all voters, but for those, but what about them? The law in Texas for a long time has said for election day, if your work schedule does not allow you to be able to get off work, your employer must let you get off work to vote. But that was for Election Day only. Now under Senate Bill 1, we have that for early voting as well. So we put aside those made-up ways and put in real ways that will help working people, help everyone vote. But, yes, we did have them try to abuse COVID. We had that same county on the cusp of mailing out millions of applications uh, to vote by mail, to voters who were not eligible to vote by mail. Our Attorney General stopped that before it happened. So yes, we did have that, and we th we think we put a stop to it in Texas. Thank you, Brian. Let's, let's go to questions. Do we have any, uh, we have people with microphones for here in the room, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. I want to first see whether we have any virtual, uh, any questions from a virtual attendee. So let's take one of those, and then we have the one hand up here in the room. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you need a, we need a microphone over here. Thank you, Ashley. All right, so here's the first question. Louisiana is the remaining state with a paperless voting system. It uses machines as opposed to paper ballots to vote. The Washington Post reports that although the state legislature committed to switching back to paper ballots, the switch won't be made in time for the 2022 election and it might not be ready for the 2024 election. What obstacles are preventing this from being a timely transition? This was specifically for Louisiana? Yes. yes. Okay, Kyle, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, we 
obviously, uh, because of HAVA, we moved from a paper-based system to electronic system. Um, now we're in the process of trying to move back to a paper-based. Uh, the senator spoke about a paper trail. We've been trying to implement a uh, uh, auditable paper trail system since 2018, and we've been uh, blocked in those efforts because of the um, the uh, um, bidding process and the complications in that process and uh, the competition between the uh, voting system companies. Um, the legislature chose to start, uh, be able to uh, provide us the opportunity to expand our efforts. We created a voting system commission. Uh, we'll be wrapping up our work with the voting system commission uh, at the end of uh, about around the middle of February. Uh, and from that, uh, we will begin the process once again of developing a request for proposals. Um, so uh, the problem is, is that when, um, when you have 2.1 million people voting in person, you have to make sure that you have all the right processes and procedures in place. Um, plus, we have to implement training for not just our commissioners, but also our local registrars who oversee our early voting system. Uh, and our clerks uh, and their employees for our uh, election day voting. Um, and we want to make sure that we educate the public um, so that they understand how the system is going to work once it's uh, ready for implementation. Um, so we, we saw the problems um, in Georgia with an overnight uh, implementation, if you will, ordered by the courts. Um, we don't want to have to be able, we don't want to have to go through those issues and those problems. Uh, but Louisiana will have a paper-based system, um, hopefully by 2024, uh, but um, maybe not be 100% implemented. We just have to see how that goes. Thank you, Kyle. Over here in the room. What's being done to determine the validity of citizenship on a voter registration card? We have 35 million illegal aliens, and 2 million more just this year. What are we doing to make sure that those people don't register to vote? Or if they do, do we check on the validity of their citizenship? Who wants it? Boy, that, that's a real problem. Uh, it is a real problem. And one of the problems is we've gotten, for example, bad decisions from liberal federal judges uh, in Florida and elsewhere. Um, when states have tried to put in provisions that would require election officials to uh, check the citizenship of individuals registering to vote. Um, we've had some federal judges say you can't do that. I, I think those decisions are wrong, but that's a real problem. And uh, actually, Senator Hughes, I think one of the things that you all did in your election reform bill was to put in a provision requiring the Secretary of State of Texas to regularly check with DM, the DMV because, uh, look, in every state across the country, as you all know, if you're an alien and you're here legally, you can get a driver's license. Uh, a dozen, dozen and a half states now, provide, I think, provide illegal aliens also with a driver's license. But Texas, for example, I think passed provision saying you got to check the DMV records to see that if, if individuals who got a driver's license and they did it as an alien here legally, did they also get registered to vote? That's just one of the things states ought to be doing. One of the other things they ought to be doing, and this is part of our election scorecard, is um, uh, states should require and use jury 
jury lists and jury summonses. You know, if you're called for jury duty in a state court, it is highly likely that the jury commissioner in that county got that information. Where'd they get their list? From election officials. They use voter registration lists to call people for jury duty. And in many states, when someone is excused from jury duty because they are not a U.S. citizen, that information isn't being sent back to election officials. Not only that, but the federal courts, where, where do folks think the federal courts get their lists of people to call for jury duty? They go to state election officials for it. That's right. And every state should say to federal courts, uh, look, you can have our voter registration list, but a condition of you using our state uh, voter registration list is that when someone is excused for jury duty in a federal court, you have to tell us that they have been excused because either they're not a U.S. citizen or for perhaps they have moved out of state. And those are all things that states ought to be doing, and many states are not doing on this issue. Responding to your question I very briefly. So I want to get to a couple uh, of questions. Look, I live in New York City. Our system is broken. Just look at our last primary election for mayor, which was a disaster. What is New York City doing? It's expanding the right of non-citizens to vote in all municipal elections. This is a big problem because they wanted to take it further. There is no enforcement if you're a non-citizen on an illegal status if you register to vote and vote. There's no enforcement of that. Secondly, a majority of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives last year voted to allow 16-year-olds to have the right to vote in federal elections. They're trying to expand the franchise to 16-year-olds, and we have lots of problems we need to fix first. Uh, at the risk of running long, we've had two very patient people here in the room, so I'm going to take those two questions. We've got one, that's fine, we can go back here and then come up here. Uh, we have two, two questions and try to keep the answers brief if we could. Thank you. Great panel. Uh, what organized effort is there to recruit election officials, uh, particularly in cities where Republicans tend to lose elections? I can take that. Go ahead. Or do you want to get both questions at once? Uh, well, that's fine. I tell you what, let's take the second question as well. It's down here, Ashley, up here. Sorry. Thank you. My question is for Hans, I believe. Uh, I'm representative of people that go out uh, weeks and sometimes months in advance of an election to secure the right to vote and to prevent integrity problems. One of the challenges a lot of people like me have is that the local folks are simply not willing to intervene when problems are identified. To what degree does the scorecard take into account maybe the statutory or regulatory environment that allows or perhaps requires local election or other officials to intervene and assist when these types of problems are identified? And I guess a subsidiary question would be, are you thinking about maybe amending the scorecard at some point in the future, evaluating the effectiveness and the bare willingness of local folks to enforce the law? Actually, those are great questions. I, I'm going to take very quickly your second question, which is, you know, we're open-minded to doing all of this. I mean, one problem with that is, for instance, there are some states that have 40, 50 counties. 254. Fine. Okay. And so what do you do? What do you do if let's 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 pick fifty. Forty-six of them follow the law and four of them don't. So one, getting the information 
to prove that is difficult. And then how do you evaluate that state's compliance when the overwhelming majority of counties are following the law, but the four that aren't or five that aren't are causing a real problem? So that there are practical difficulties with your second suggestion. And now we'll go back to the, the other question. Yeah. Jessica, you go first but, and then. But, but go ahead. we realize that's a problem. And that's why the scorecard has a rating of states on whether or not they give the state legislature and uh, uh, residents of the state the ability right. to sue in court election officials and others who are not complying with the election laws that the state legislature has put in place. They should have standing to go after election officials and others who are saying, uh, you have a law on this, we're just not going to comply with it. Because that is that is a very important part of our classification. So we, we are actually looking at that issue. And that is in the scorecard, so it doesn't have to be amended. Right. Jessica. Just briefly, <laughs> yesterday was National Poll Worker Recruitment Day. And this was a nonpartisan push uh, across the country to recruit and identify poll workers to, to basically get vetted and trained now so they can be ready for November and, and certainly when early voting begins. So one, I would just encourage anyone that um, is looking to volunteer to, to check out the resources online. A lot of them are available at saveourelections.com uh, where you can get plugged in. And then there's a really um, deep and, and pretty cool uh, coalition that's working uh, outside of Washington to recruit and place poll workers in areas where, you know, we just haven't been in, in years previously to build, as the gentleman behind you would say, the capacity on the ground. Uh, and so if you're interested in getting involved in that, please see me afterwards, and I'm happy to, to plug you in. Um, but it's a real effort, and I think the model that was done in Virginia for the um, gubernatorial race and up and down that ballot proved that this can be done in other states. So I knew that this time would fly by. My apologies if we did not get uh, to your question. This is an important effort and obviously something that will be uh, ongoing. And please take a moment to thank our panelists. Thanks for coming to Heritage.